These are the Keishi Tapes. You, Man, and Favaz explore the backstories and interviews heard on Keishi, the longest-running rock station in the country. Welcome to Keishi Tapes. I'm John Hewitt, and there is... Favaz. Hi, John. Hi. Are you ready for show 88? I am ready. I, I know who this is. I'm not a fan, but, um, oh. you know, well, I, no, I'm not a fan. How come? Um, I'm just... Uh, I'm just not a big Jethro Tull fan, and it has nothing to do with flute rock. I know Learn has made a big deal about that, and she hates him, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, because of flute rock. I- I'm okay with flutes in rock. I just Jethro Tull's music never did much for me. Mm. It just hasn't. So, okay. but I think we just indicated who we're going to have on today. Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. That's right. And he's always been a proper speaking fellow. Uh, he's a he's a deep thinker. He's a very intelligent man. Mm-hmm. Um. Not just into music, but was into other things. He actually, I think he owned a, a fish farm for a while back in the day. I remember that about yeah. him. So he's into nature and preserving uh, species of the world. And we'll see what he has to say here. I don't know why he was calling us this particular day, but this goes back to 2013. Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull. It was July 12th, 2013. Let's get okay. it going. Yeah, I'm calling uh, Casey to speak to, I believe, John Ulett. Okay, and are we are we on to do the interview right now? Yes, let's let her rip. This is Ian Anderson of Jethro Tull fame on the phone with us right now at KC95. Ian, it's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. You have uh, accomplished so much in the music industry, and we're just so excited to have you in town here. Here's where I butter them up real oh, good. Man, you know? I was going to say that ass-kissing is number one with you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're Sunday night at the Peabody Opera House, and you're doing Thick as a Brick in its entirety, and then... The updated version, if you will, or the you know, thick as a brick is the song that uh, Ernie Hayes would play for Keith Hernandez when he came to the plate on the organ back in the days. Why? Keith asked for it. Really? Yeah. Hmm. Continued version of that great legendary classic album, Thick as a Brick Two, in its entirety. Tell us all about the show. Well, it's um, presented. In the- oh, I just told everybody about it. I guess. Yeah, you pretty of, much just <laughs> said what's going to happen, John. Way to go. <laughs> bit more of a theatrical That's what he's thinking. <laughs> you son of a bitch, you left me hanging here. Now what? Theatrical context is not really a straightforward rock and roll show. And, um, you know, we have... What, what a voice, though. He's got a, he reminds me of David Coverdale. Yeah. You know, that, that <clears throat> yeah. British voice. The, it's today of modern technology in terms of sound and lights and video, and, as well as uh, the help of additional performers. So it's... Uh, it's presented in a slightly more theatrical way, which I think keeps the audience interested, especially difficult, as you can imagine, presenting all of uh, a new work in the in the year 2013. Audiences don't tend to come flocking to venues to hear all of the new album by an old band. Yeah, I'm a good point you got there. That right. And I got to be honest with you, I've never, I don't think I've ever listened to Thick as a Brick all the way through both sides of the album. You know, it's. Mm-hmm. I know I haven't, John. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, one song on an entire album practically is just kind of not my bag. Well, wait a minute. You like Yes. Yes was kind of famous for that. Yes, but theirs was, uh, I don't know. Their music was better. It was better. (laughs) So, um, you know, to make that work, to make it interesting, to keep their attention, to keep them involved, you have to be... um, putting a thinking cap on when it's in a show. And it is writing a show with all the cues and the choreography 
stuff. You've got to be in the right place at the right time on stage, and everything is pretty meticulously done. First time I, that I've done that kind of a show, really, in uh, in all my years. But um, I quite like it. It's almost like turning up for work at the theatre and being on Broadway. And, and and why did you choose to do it this way in particular? Because it, it, is it is it uh, just to do something different, or or what? Well, I think it's because it's quite it is quite different. It's also quite difficult. And um, as your president Kennedy once said, we don't choose to go to the moon because it's easy. We we want to go to the moon because it's hard. And that's why, for me, at this point in my life, I'd rather turn the wick up and burn a little brighter and do things that aren't necessarily hmm. just about resting on laurels, but um, tackling some bigger subjects and presenting them in a in a in a bigger more ambitious way having said that this is still a traveling theater show so it's not a we don't have uh, we don't have madonna's cast offs in terms of um dancers and uh, oiled bodies <laughs> uh, well you know you've always been one though to kind of do things in in a more difficult way i mean for instance just i i have a friend who is a a flautist if you will and uh, she tells me that the way you play the flute is the harder way to play it is that accurate uh no no that, that's she's got it absolutely wrong it's it's um you know i started playing the flute when i was 20 years old i mean effectively and you might me to call her up and give her some crap about that. Who will said you? that, John? I don't remember. Maybe I made it up. Wider out, wider out of your life. <laughs> December of 1967, and uh, a month later, I was I was playing it um, every night on stage at the Marquee Club. And tell the folks, Favaz, why I, he started was, playing it. He he heard Eric Clapton play guitar. He was a guitar player, and he heard Clapton, and he was like. Well, I'll never be as good as him, so I might as well do something else. And he started. He took up the flute. Yeah, yeah. Well, wherever we were playing around. Then why did he start wearing those tights? You know, I, I once again he saw he uh, he saw Eric Clapton. No, I have no idea. Well, wherever we were playing around to the south of England, so you know I, I had to learn from a standing start, which meant that I never had any lessons. I didn't learn to play the flute properly or correctly in the traditional sense. I just had to make it up and try to make the flute compete with the electric guitar. Mm -hmm. So I certainly wasn't the best flute player in town. Oh, make the flute compete with the electric guitar. Uh That's that's more proof of what uh, you just said. Yeah, I think it's kind of a mismatch, but uh, (laughs) hey, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, why would he even think that could compete with the guitar? Mm. That's kind of strange. Mm, Okay. Um, In 1968, but I was probably the loudest. (laughs) <laughs> but I mean the way you play it uh, in your unique fashions if someone tried to imitate the way you play it they w- it would be difficult for them maybe that's what she was saying well it's difficult for flute players who've been taught uh, the traditional methods of presenting uh, clear perfect notes the correct embouchure the correct fingering then it, it would be a little difficult to go back and find that slightly more naive and aggressive approach Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I came from a world of guitar playing. I could play a bit of guitar before I played the flute, so I, I had a, a reference point. I just translated my embryonic guitar style into uh, into playing the flute and then developed it from there. But, but these days, of course, I do have to play properly as well. I have to play nicely in some parts of some tunes. So um, I'm a more rounded flute player now than I was when I started, that's for sure. More what? Rounded. Rounded. Mm-hmm. Well, in more than one way. 
We're speaking too many too many clam chowders when I'm in America. We're speaking what? I have no idea. Too many clam chowders. What? Play it back. <laughs> Is that what he said? Oh, done. Let's hear it again. <laughs> We're speaking too many with, too many clam chowders when I'm in America. Yeah, that's yeah. what he said. We're speaking with Ian Anderson. Uh, he will be in town here Sunday night at the Peabody Opera House. Tickets remain for the show. Get yours and see this living legend live on stage. Now let's go back to, uh, if I may. Ian, uh, when you told the record company back in, well, what was it, uh, 68, 69, when, with Thick as a Brick, uh, guys, I got one song and it's going to take up the whole damn record. What, what, what did they say to you about that? Well, they didn't really say anything because they didn't know about it until it was all done. And, uh, <laughs> what did he say? He said uh, they didn't say it because they didn't know it. Are you, are you being serious? Yeah, I didn't know what he... Oh, yeah, he said, that, well, they didn't know it. Uh, they they didn't know it at the time that he just it was oh, just one oh. song. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he didn't tell anybody. No, he didn't tell anybody. Then manager Terry Ellis and Chrysalis Records had to take um, take what they were delivered, and and um, you know we delivered it pretty quickly and on time. It took about a month from well, yeah, probably about a month from starting the the writing process to delivering a finished album with artwork, and um, that was working to a tight schedule so you know we delivered finished product you notice he said schedule i i which is the yes. proper way to say that word in america we say it wrong i know yeah. and i had a guy that, at my other job with the state who used to say schedule <laughs> all the time and i you just and when he just said it i thought of him oh there you go and um and that was it so i i guess there were a few nervous um moments particularly at the time with the uh, distributors in, in the USA who could not see an easy way to market and promote an album that was uh, essentially one long piece of unbroken music. But, but for radio stations, we were, we were kind, we were thoughtful. We, yes. I did a separate uh, uh, master which consisted of all the music broken down into nice three or four minute chunks so that uh, a number of vinyl copies were pressed for the U.S radio market so that this jockeys could carefully drop the, the needle on into the uh, into the uh, into the rills the, the, the grooves the opened up grooves between the tracks they could yeah. uh, actually place up good pieces one. these days of course we have to do the same thing in terms of what we call unbundling now when we when we when we take something and break it up into smaller components for um, for digital delivery on uh, on the uh, the paid for correct and proper digital media that you and I use because of course we do not somebody, on, somebody, what the hell is he talking somebody about? getting bored here or what? Well, come on I mean god yeah. that, that just went up. well he was talking I'm about sorry. how back then in the, in, on the albums uh, you know he had one album one song for, for both sides of the album but then he put forth a radio version which allowed various different breaking up spots yeah, on the album. Yeah, which is good. He says the same thing with digital music now. If somebody gives you one file of one song, right. you have to break it up the same way and put it in different files. And right. That's. I just want to know if his flute got him any action. Did you ask that? <laughs> I don't know. Let's well, see. Well, come on. Download things without paying for it, because mm -hmm. we believe in the future of music. That's right. And there won't be any if you try and grab it for nothing. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that, Ian. Uh, Ian, there's there's only been one Jethro Tull when you talk about the sound of, of, of the band. And and, um, and I would assume that you are, are very proud of the fact that what you created 
really still has has never been matched has never nobody's ever really tried to imitate the sound in in, in their music today uh what are your thoughts on all of that uh, your position i guess in in rock and roll history and the, in the uniqueness of jethro tull great question wow well i suppose there are those who who do give a, a serious try to imitating their idols and in some cases make a living out of it i mean uh I suppose you could say that um, um, in the days of Jimi Hendrix, people mostly had good enough sense not to go out and try and copy Jimi's guitar style and playing because it would have been so obvious. It was such a unique way of playing. But Robin Trower gave it a pretty good go. And for a while, you know, he made a comfortable living doing, um, you know, playing very much in the style of Jimi Hendrix, of course. He didn't look the same by any means. <laughs> Are you sure about that? <laughs> but he had a very similar guitar style and approach. I'm quite sure modeled very much on Jimi Hendrix. Um, well, my wife didn't know that Jimi Hendrix was black until about two years ago. You're kidding. No. Wow. <laughs> we were sitting Where the in, hell has she been? I was watching a documentary on Jimi Hendrix on TV. And That's it, him? <laughs> <laughs> she, she gets in the bed. She, she, she's reading a magazine. She looks up. She goes, what are you watching? I said, oh, it's a documentary on Jimi Hendrix. She says, is that him? I said, yeah. She says, I didn't know he was black. Wow. Wow. And then, of course, the next question came, is he still alive? <laughs> <laughs> This is your wife we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's one of the reasons why I married her. She didn't know anything about music. And I was like, hey, I can live with this. There have been others who've done the same sort of thing, but generally they get rumbled and probably uh, criticized in, in fair terms, you know, for being copious rather than the real deal. And I think if someone was to come up and start playing flute in a rock and roll band and doing something like I do, you know, then the comparisons would be endless. Uh, I think we should remember that Peter Gabriel, back in the early days of Genesis, mm. used to play the flute on stage. Um, I think rather wisely he gave that up after a short time. <laughs> <laughs> How about that? He takes a shot at Peter Gabriel. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. And Peter yeah. Gabriel used to dress up in really crazy ass costumes too when he was on stage. Really? Yeah. So he was. I don't know if he was channeling Ian Is Anderson in, here. Inner Ian. Yeah. Just as I decided to completely abandon my wardrobe of giant sunflower hats. <laughs> That's Peter Gabriel. <laughs> and, and the green tights, of course. Well, I'm not sure that I'm not sure that um, Ian would wear green tights, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. Peter, well, Peter Gabriel probably did have some uh, uh, some costume fantasies that were along the lines of copies and tights, but uh, again, wisely, I think he left that one to me. <laughs> you don't still wear those, do you? Uh, only to weddings and funerals. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> We're speaking with Ian Anderson. He, of course, of Jethro Tull fame. Ian, how do you know when you're... How do you make the decision to be Ian Anderson versus a member of Jethro Tull? What music you have available is going to be recorded as Jethro Tull or as a solo album? Well, I think these days if it's something that's a bit more project-related um, than... Out of the dual branding possibilities, I think I'm probably going to go for the Ian Anderson one, because if it says simply Jethro Tull on the ticket, people are going to expect generic best of Jethro Tull. You know, they're going to expect the 20 best, you know, 20 best known songs. And yeah. that's fair enough. I, I Do you think there are 20 good, uh, well-known Jethro Tull songs? 20? Mm -hmm. No. No? I don't. I'd say about at least a dozen. And, and I'm, I'm speaking, you know, I'm like... I'm not a big fan. I'm not a big fan, but 
but you know, I'm talking about recognizable yeah. Jethro Tull songs. I don't think there's 20. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd say at least a dozen. Mm-hmm. 20 might be a little much. But uh, hey, if you're a big fan, you know 40. You know. Oh, you know, you know everything, yeah. probably. I have a few concerts like that this year. But um, most of the shows are the, uh, are the, the, the production shows of Thick as a Brick. And I think it's important that we don't have people come along to a concert expecting to hear the best of mm-hmm. show when, in fact, they're getting a very tightly focused conceptual performance. So I think I probably, you know, would continue to use my own name when there are more conceptual and specific things that I'm doing. But, you know, I, I'm the guy who, um, you know, wrote almost all of the music Jethro Tull has recorded. And uh, you know, I'm the lyric writer, the music writer, the arranger, the producer, the, the manager. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not, the, I'm not the only important thing about the various incarnations of the band members because I've been 28 members of Jethro Tull over the years. Wow. And all of them have brought their own special talents and skills to bear in the band at that time. You know, when it comes to the the artistic and creative side of it, I'm sure they all agree that that was my job, and they were there to to help make it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was uh, the man. Well, I knew he was the man. I I had no idea happened. that there were that many different oh, yeah. uh, band mm-hmm. members. Wow, yeah, over the years, definitely. And and here's a guy who's kind of like trapped himself. He can't go out as when, when he goes out as Ian Anderson. A lot of people don't know who he is, right? But if he goes out as Jethro Tull, they they know what Jethro Tull music is, but he's not, that's not what he's doing. Right. He's doing an Ian Anderson show. Right. So he's kind of yeah. like got himself yeah. in a, in a catch 22. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, some people say, what's the difference between Ian Anderson and Jethro Tull? I mean, I have to say, well, not a lot, you know, it's just what it, it's just the way it's written up on the concert ticket. <laughs> Ian, uh, thank you for being with us here this morning on KC 95. As you know, we've been playing your music here at this more stroking. Here we go. Here we go radio station going way back to the very beginning and we still play a lot of it on our a lot of our specialty shows and included in our regular programming from time to time as well it's just been an honor talking with you that's all that's it that's how it ends i think so it doesn't say john you're a blundering idiot no doesn't say anything like that (laughs) (laughs) i'm sure he did but i cut it out see i ain't stupid (laughs) all right thanks for listening to hey wait a minute hold on oh now, he was just on that Dan Rather show on Access TV, oh, the big yeah. interview where he revealed that he has uh, the lung disease COPD, mm. um, where he says he's fine, you know, but he said for the first time in his life, I was just reading that uh, for the first time since he's been about 20 years old, he, he's gone a whole year without getting sick. I'll be darned. And, um, and I think he just wrote right. a song called COPD, and it's uh, it's one song, an entire album, uh, what's on both I, sides. I don't have the uh, rim shot <laughs> here, John. You have to wait till the morning show. It's an show. amazing piece of music. Yes. A lot of coughing in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Uh, that's episode 88 of the KC Tapes. I'm John Hewlett. You can follow me on Twitter at STLUman. And on Instagram, I'm Johnny Hewlett. And I am John's partner, Favaz. AMF. Bye. The KC Tapes with you, man, and Favaz. For more on the history of KC, go to KC95.com or the KC mobile app.